0: welcome to the api experience 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 hi everyone and welcome to this api experience my name is Matt McClarty. I'm the CTO of Boomi, and it's great to have you here. As always, it's my pleasure to have Mr. Mike Ammons in here as well. Mike, what's going on?
1: Hey, not much. I'm coming to you from uh, Studio B here, B for basement. Everything's going fine. Staying out of trouble. It's a little too hot for me, but mm. you know it's August, so I'm I'm muddling through.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's we've we've had a hot one here. I have to admit, since our uh, since we recorded our last episode, I had the pleasure of me as the foreign Canadian visiting your nation's capital in uh, Washington D.C., walking the Excellent. National Mall. I have to say, like I had no idea those Smithsonian museums were free. Like that, that just blew huh. me away. That's I the think, idea. Uh, so, anyway,
1: so you so you spent time in the swamp. Then you spent time in the D.C. swamp. Oh, yes, right? yes,
0: that's right. I was in the yeah. swamp in the it's very human. That, I don't is know is how they walk. They, is around. that the reflecting pool? Yes. No, maybe not.
1: Well, no, the whole the whole thing is built on a swamp. And I don't know how they walk around in suits and ties over there because I just it's way too much for me. But I'm glad you had a good time yeah. in the museums.
0: In in all seriousness, it was very impressive, much more impressive than I'd even expected, and much bigger. So definitely uh shout out to uh to visit the National Mall when you get a chance, if you haven't had a chance. Um, and speaking of DC, that's actually a little bit of a segue uh-huh. for our guest today, because I know he spent time in in DC. And uh, today on the show, first of all, in terms of our our theme here, we're really talking about how do you build an API platform at scale? And for that, we have a very distinguished guest, Mr. Irakli Naderishvili, who is managing director of Global Banking Platform at JPMorgan Chase. He's also a co-author of the O'Reilly books, Microservices Up and Running, and a little book we call Microservice Architecture. And of course, Irakli is also a former colleague of ours, Mike, from our API Academy days. Absolutely. Irakli, welcome to the API experience. Hey guys,
2: thank you so much for having me. It's so much fun to be catching up with you and talking about the amazing world of APIs and platforms.
0: Yes, and and we're looking forward to that and we we uh you know, we saw your talk in API Days in New York, which is great really is the grounding for this whole discussion. But, you know, for those who aren't familiar with your background, we'd love to love for you to share, you know, what what's been your journey into and within the world of APIs?
2: Yeah, so uh, it feels like I spent my almost entire adult life in APIs, but uh, speaking specifically about the uh, designing and publishing of APIs, that journey probably started a little over 15 years ago when I um, was, uh, for some reason I still don't know, was entrusted with authoring the World Bank's first public API. Hmm. And later that led to uh, my role uh, in the Public APIs of NPR, which is uh, National Public Radio. And uh, since then, I've been in this space. Uh, my API game probably elevated significantly when I was, uh, again, for reasons unknown, invited by the two of you to join API Academy, <laughs> and I learned a lot from uh, from you guys. And uh, yeah, I love I love this space. Uh, I've been doing it for quite a while
1: yeah so I you know I also remember the time we spent at the academy together, and I remember I learned so much uh, in such a very short time from your experience. Um, I had the the uh, the opportunity to follow you i think on on your recommendation to do a little work for NPR as well and always had a great experience with that API and um you know one of the things that you mentioned World Bank, you mentioned uh, NPR these are two apis that span a lot of platforms, a lot of organizational uh, heft. And the title for this podcast, we actually took from your talk from New York, this building API platforms at scale, right? And and I think this is a super challenging space. Matt and I have talked about it on on the podcast here before, and I, and I spend uh, some time in there. So there are words in there that people might, you know, take for granted or might just kind of gloss over. So let's just, just, hit the big ones platforms and scale what is that what does that really mean to you when when you think about APIs what is a platform and what makes a platform scale
2: yeah so before we get into that conversation i want to make a, a obligatory disclaimer that Any opinions uh, expressed here are my own. (laughs) And nobody in the world is responsible for them because mostly nobody wants to be responsible for them. (laughs) But with that disclaimer, we can get going. And um, uh, so uh, I appreciate your question because uh, scale can mean a lot of things, right? Uh, Scale can mean a lot of traffic. Scale can mean uh, a lot of sales. Uh, specifically, when uh, I talked about uh, scale for plat in the context of the platforms, uh, what I meant was um, building the solutions, building the platforms that can scale beyond the use cases they were designed for. Right. Mm-hmm. So, if you think about like for me, my favorite example of a platform uh, like that is um, Amazon S three storage service, mm-hmm. and uh, If I'm not mistaken, it goes all the way back to like 2005 or or sometime Mm -hmm. around that. And uh, uh, for those of us who remember that time, I believe S3 was literally created so that you could host your like GIFs and JPEGs Mm -hmm. or CSS Mm -hmm. files as you were building websites. And that was Mm -hmm. pretty much all you did on the internet, right? So Mm -hmm. people (laughs) needed some file storage for those kind of things and they built it. And you fast forward to like late 2000s and like 2021, 2022, and uh, today, and now people are using S3 to build their data lakes that drive their machine learning and AI use cases. Mm -hmm. And the shocking thing, and the thing that I admire is S3 API implementation obviously has changed a lot, but the interface of of that API, the interface Mm -hmm. of that platform, virtually has not changed in the last 20 plus years. It's it's the same interface, but used for things that didn't even exist, let alone anybody could imagine to design uh, uh, that platform for. So that's the kind of scale, right? So um, you build something and then people find ways to use it far beyond what you designed it for. So kind of probably hmm. use case scale more than the scale for traffic. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think a lot of that comes back to sort of change frequency, right? Like scale in terms of anticipating change. Is that a fair way to look at it?
2: Yeah. So the the other thing that Mike asked is, uh, and and by the way, what does platforms mean? Right. So um, Mm -hmm. that can also be a loaded term. Um, I think that uh, the way I talk about it and like the way we will be talking about it today is um, like, if you think about the APIs for me, each API is some kind of action, right? So you design an API, it can get something done. So it's a single affordance, right? So it can make a payment or it can uh, transfer money or it can uh, create a uh, comment, uh, depending on what uh, it is trying to do. Platform is more of a holistic value, right? So platform for, me would be a rewards platform, right, that uh, can have its accounting piece and then uh, 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 accumulation piece. Uh, uh, It could be the uh, customer platform, which involves the whole life cycle of customer management, right? It could be payments platform that is not limited just to making a single payment, but everything that is related to the payment space right so platforms are like more holistic end to end solutions that have that usually have a lot of apis right so they have a lot of affordances they respond to many actions and they also can emit a lot of events so it can be a combination of apis and streams and other things but it's a subdomain so in a domain driven design that would be more of a subdomain of It holistically addresses some need, whereas API is just a single action, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, in my practice and research, I have come to appreciate the platforms, the holistic solutions more, Mm -hmm. and uh, started viewing APIs as more of a means to the end. So that has been my personal transformation in this uh, space.
0: Well, and I I love the way that in your talk, and we, we will put in the show notes the Link to the talk for people who want to want to see the whole thing, and I think you have a an accompanying blog that or, or article that really lays out the same story. You you've created a, a storyline, which is great—a great way of sort of absorbing what you the guidance that you're providing here. And you have a, a a CIO whose big driver is just an absolute disdain for wasted work and duplication of work, right? And but in the story. You know, one of the things you point out, and I think this ties back to the definition you just gave on platform, is how uh, instead of just sort of building APIs ad hoc as needed, that there really should be a work work done up front to group those APIs into business domains and into platforms and so on. And, you know, you're you're pointing out some, I think, some very, from experience too, very good legitimate uh, areas of danger if you're just sort of cobbling together the APIs as needed. I'm just curious, though, when we think about this notion of scaling, right? I think in the in the startup world, you'll see people talk about scaled startups, et cetera, et cetera. There's this sort of process mentality. But do you think it's like, is it something that every organization has to go through where they have to sort of start by just creating the APIs as needed and then the grouping comes later? Like, is it a necessary evolutionary step or do you think people can just go straight to the scaled domain? Driven approach uh, or, or the platform approach, I guess, is how you'd put it.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, in practice, you probably always see people getting comfortable with APIs mm-hmm. and ending up uh, building kind of wild forest of APIs based on the immediate needs, and mm-hmm. then graduating to the next level of maturity of thinking in platforms. That's just de facto what I have seen in many organizations. Now, if you hire a lot of people who have gone through that process elsewhere, <laughs> and if you can if they can build yeah. you something clean from the get-go, I, I assume that's possible. But yeah, usually people need to acquire that experience somewhere, maybe not in that company they're currently doing it in. But you don't just uh wake up one day and start building platforms. I have not seen many of those cases.
1: Yeah, and you know, when when you talk about that, uh you know, do you start from zero? Do you start, do do you have to kind of get to chaos before you get to scale? You, you know, you, you use some of these phrases. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of Gaul's law. We've talked about this, right, right. Where, uh, you know, if you want to build a system that works, it has to start from a simple system that works and then grow from there. You can't, you can't start from a big system right away. So there is some kind of evolution, right? I mean, there's, there's some pattern in there somewhere where we have to acknowledge, you know, I don't need 70 microservices today because I only have five people working on this, but I might eventually, right? Is, is that is that the right way to think about it or is there something else?
2: Absolutely, and I'm really glad you mentioned it because um, as you can tell, I'm pretty excited about platforms and <laughs> I'm a big fan <laughs> and I enjoy doing it. It uh, doesn't seem to be a secret. But once you are sold on building platforms, the really important question is, and something that um, imaginary CIO Michelle in my story struggled with, mm, yeah. well, what do you include in the platform and what do you exclude from the platform? How do you uh, draw the boundaries of like, what APIs make the initial version of it versus next version versus eventually. And what I have found is very important is to have an identity, right? You have to be very clear. And uh, it's funny you mentioned startups, right? Because like a scaled startup that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. it's very similar to the notion of scaling that uh, like the way I think about uh, platforms, right? Startups are also usually built To satisfy a need, but then be able to satisfy many other needs in the future, at least the really successful ones, right? That Mm -hmm. necessarily founders didn't think about at the founding thing. And um, similarly, for startups, it's also important to have an identity, right? Your brand, like what are you known for? What do you do? But Mm -hmm. way more importantly, what do you refuse to do, right? Mm -hmm. You cannot be a crowd pleaser. If you want to be a successful startup, and anybody who has built startups knows this, but the same applies for platforms. You cannot be a platform that just tries to take every single request any possible customer of the platform may have in their head and just tries to implement everything because you will lose your identity. You will lose the grip on what are the actions, what are the APIs and streams that actually are part of your platform you will become this like very unexciting kind of something for a lot of people, but not anything for anybody specific. And that's Mm -hmm. the biggest danger that um, platform designers face in my opinion.
0: That's a, yeah, that's a really, uh, it's, it's one of those things that's very hard to define, right? It's like, you don't, what is identity? Well, you don't know until you see it kind of a, kind of a thing, but (laughs) it is uh, probably does separate a lot of the really successful apis or platforms from uh, from the others now in the in the article you i love that you've you know taken you're, you're sort of using this narrative approach to challenge some of the conventional wisdom that i think we see out there or 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 some of the common practices at least that we see out there in the api community and one of the big ones is this like heavy rotation on the idea of reusability right to that that you know you want to build it once the, the dry principle don't repeat yourself you just build once reuse everywhere which you know in in as you as you articulate well i think is not necessarily the case and you you introduce this this measure you're calling TCR or total cost of reuse in time right now i know that uh you know you have a you have a nice way of uh of coming up with these memes uh, for things which are which is important for people to remember the concepts, and I remember when you did the the rule of twos at one point, right where you're talking about in order mm-hmm. to ensure loose coupling you want to have use at least two things so that you don't get get tight coupling between systems that was a good one but but coordination costs I know is something that you've been stressing a long time, and so I feel like the t c r really attacks that right so you know are there you know this TCR, is this something that you think is really quantifiable? Like, is it something that you actively measure or is it more conceptually you go after it? And, and you know, a, a lot of the focus around TCR is around the frequency of change in APIs, right? Do you have do you have some examples of how you might evaluate the... Well, I guess, first of all, maybe give a little more elaboration of what TCR is all about, but then how do you actually eva- measure TCR... On an API, and how do you anticipate the frequency of change?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me spend a little bit time to, uh, for those who may not have heard the TCR before. And I, I wish I was uh, so famous that anything I've ever said, everybody already knows what I mean. <laughs> but I'm very far from that, as we all know. So, um, what is TCR? So, so basically. Um, A lot of people who have not spent a lot of time with CIOs or have not been CIOs uh, have this impression that CI is all about innovation, and same goes for CTOs. Uh, That is definitely true. They are expected to drive technological innovation to drive to business uh, needs. But it's also, um, uh, for some people, pretty surprising how much of the CIOs and CTOs' job uh, especially after some size of an organization to worry about efficiency right mm-hmm. and uh it's, it's quite a big portion of the job and uh, it, it, it there's good reasons for this right so uh to achieve the results ideas are great but 90 percent of it of success is execution and execution mm-hmm. is all about efficiency right so it all makes sense once you um think about it but um Bottom line is because efficiency is very important, a lot of times when um, I have seen uh, senior product and technology leaders think about uh, platforms, the main driving way of determining what the identity of the platform is and like what to put in versus not to put in has been this uh, focus on reuse, right? So Mm -hmm. the very obvious sounding idea is, hey, if... 10 different departments in our large organization need the same thing, why don't we implement it centrally once in this platform? Then it avoids nine implementations, gets only implemented once, we save ton of money, and at least portion of that money can go into our annual bonuses. Win-win, right? (laughs) And by the way, for full disclaimer, usually that's not how bonuses are determined. But um, that said, uh, there is a problem with that logic. Right? Because when people uh, evaluate what to um, implement, by looking at uh, how many people need this feature at a given point in time, which is how reusers usually evaluate it, they miss the point that features live in time. right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. today, 10 different organizations may need the same feature exact same way. Right, so let's say, I think I gave the example of like we're implementing a loyalty and rewards program, and our commercial unit, consumer unit, and uh, 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 partnership unit all need rewards uh, 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 implementation. So we implement it once, and then they can all use it. Uh, They don't need to individually implement it. That all sounds very cool, and once you implement it, they are very happy immediately, but fast forward a year from now, right? And now one of them has a requirement that the other two don't care about. Mm-hmm. And that's when the coordination kicks in, right? So how do you change the feature of the shared implementation just to cater to one of the customers, right? Mm -hmm. And you may have many customers, especially if that change is uh, a breaking change and backwards incompatible. Now you're inconveniencing a whole bunch of customers that don't care about this change to accommodate one customer, or you're telling this one customer that even if they have like potential profit of like 100 million due to that change, you can't do it because you're a shared platform and you cannot, like you get into this huge dependencies. Mm. And it may sound not that big of a deal if it happens once, but over the total lifetime of the shared platform, if you don't design things carefully, the shared functionality may have so many change requests from different parties that require so much coordination to introduce carefully that the uh, like eventually that shared platform will become the most hated platform because <laughs> the commercial unit could have made that change in a month. And now you have made it into a like a year project because like everybody needs to be retested and yar 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 so, so that's what we mean by total cost of reuse, right? Reuse sounds like always good idea if you think about it in the moment. But if you think about the fact that as soon as you do reuse, Multiple parties depend on the same thing. And now you have a coordination you have introduced. And over time, coordinations often can be very, very costly. Over the lifetime of the reused resource, are you really saving the money? You got to really think about it.
1: Yeah, that's that's the thing that's come up several times uh, when I talk to companies as well. And although they, they don't quite latch onto to the, the way you have explained, which I really love, as soon as you start with anything total cost you can see ears perk up in the room right so wait total cost okay um so i and i really love that but i do the way i often hear people talk about it is the way you you were saying eventually that becomes the most hated platform in the company that's where they whip out the the really the, the negative word legacy system or um you know some other phrase that describes you know the debt or the technical debt or something like that when it becomes difficult to move when it kind of congeals mm-hmm. to the point where it's it's difficult to make a change and you know i go back to the popandee line the real measure of of an organization's uh, agility is the time it takes for uh, a bug to finally uh, get fixed and show up in production a code change to show up in production and reuse can really play havoc with that right that's kind of one of the things you're you're saying right
2: absolutely right so you 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 hit it on the head right so legacy systems we we use that term so liberally but we often forget that uh, every legacy system was at some point in the past the beloved yeah. system right they yeah. they didn't just become a legacy system they started as the as the golden mm-hmm. child and then they became <laughs> this hated thing And uh, the reason they became it is not just the passage of time, right? So that's probably the mistake we make. Like we started with an example of S3. S3 has been around for longer than most legacy systems. Nobody hates S3. I still love S3. It's that if your system with the passage of time becomes hard to change and adapt, that's Mm -hmm. when it becomes the legacy system with the negative connotation, right? So it's all about the change. You're, You're spot on on that. I totally agree.
0: This is the API experience.
1: Yeah. So, so that, that kind of leads me. So that was a big part of that, of that presentation. And it's in your, in your paper as well, that total cost and the, and thinking of reuse as over time, which I think I I've always had this idea that time is actually an architectural element in your design process. And this seemed to just nail that right, right on the head there, the idea that, Time as part of your reuse. You you also have some other in the talk. You you have these other sort of principles. These uh, three principles that you talk about, and I think all of them. um, I got a little. I got a little tick. I got a little jab in the side from a couple of them, which which I think is really really good. I I I think you're kind of tweaking uh, uh, my brain, which I I love. Uh, The first one you talk about is platforms should never be the arbiters of common behavior for consumers built on top of those platforms that's a long long sentence but if i get it the idea is that platforms shouldn't be controlling how consumers build apps is that right or is there is is there something else to it
2: right so uh there's a common theme to these three principles right because like uh, the whole idea was uh not to scare people away from building <laughs> platforms. Uh, like I said, I'm a huge uh, fan of platforms, but rather to explain some of the pitfalls and then give some tools, some um, uh, ways to think about how to avoid the mistakes right And there's a common thing to all this uh, uh, to all this uh, ru- all these three rules that we uh, articulate. And the common uh, uh, rule I actually got an, I gotta give a credit. I actually got an inspiration from you. because long long time ago when i was your student of apis um, you taught me to respect the and pay attention to the frequency of change uh, Mm -hmm. of things and uh, i basically remembered it because it was one of the best advices i've ever gotten (laughs) in design and uh, i applied it to the platforms right so when we talk about total cost of reuse like does that mean that we're so scared of total cost of reuse that like we never try to implement something reusable like is that what it means and the answer is obviously not what we need to be uh, doing is to be looking whatever we centralize and implement as a central thing it does create coordination if there is a change that will happen it will be expensive But what if we centralize things that just inherently by their nature do not change that frequently, right? Mm -hmm. So if the change is just very uh, um, um, uh, unprobable, right? So if we implement the things that just naturally don't change that often, then we will never have to deal with this problem to begin with, right? So the total cost of uh, uh, reuse just naturally will be lower. So, so that's kind of like what we're trying to do, like avoid things that require a lot of coordination that create the conditions for coordination. And that's what leads us. So, so that's a very important general rule. And more specifically, that leads us to the first rule that you were referring to, that platforms should not be the arbiters of standards, right? Yeah. So S3 does not force you to... Uh, come up with the data model behind the uh, uh, file yeah, storage yeah. and it does not yeah. define your like standard schema or does not tell you how to think about uh, storing uh, your files, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've definitely been part of the organizations where we were building platforms and the first thing we were asked to do is can you define the standard data model for the entire company? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. as a platform you have ability to enforce it, so can you also define it and that's the most unthankful, <laughs> the hardest, the yeah. worst job that you may be asked to do. Uh, centralized data models are very uh, fragile, but also, like, you will spend so much time trying to, like, bring together different departments and have them agree on the standards. You will never build that platform, or that platform will be um, frozen uh, as soon as you launch it.
0: Uh-huh. So that that really helped my understanding of that one. I was thinking whether that was behavior that fell outside the identity. But I think, you know, to probably oversimplify it, that it's like you want to be service providers, not police in that sense, right? Like you don't either.
2: want to be police. And you want to implement things that are obviously things people can agree on, right? right? You don't want to be the one forcing people to agree on a large set of standards. Like think right. about how thin S3 is, Right. Mm-hmm. It does a pretty specific thing, things that people right. could like, like they didn't have to bring everybody who was building websites in the same room and have them mm-hmm. agree on the standard. Like they implemented something that made sense to everybody. Those right. are the kind of things you want to be doing.
0: Okay. Perfect. Okay. Now then I, I will admit then, and maybe I've, maybe I've misunderstood this one, but I think the second principle to me seems like it. it's, again, as Mike said, is tweaking, it's, it's it's seems a bit controversial to me, right? This is platforms should never orchestrate calls to other platforms on behalf of consumers. So if we were to look across the industry, we would probably see a lot of guidance around orchestration and and coordination in this in the sort of architectural sense and hierarchical integration models of APIs, right? Is this is this really saying like if let's say i'm a retailer and i've got multiple payment providers um that i should not aggregate the services for those under sort of a, a canonical payment platform that i use on my web channel and my mobile channel i know i'm taking it i'm taking it to an extreme here but you know what what is the essence of this point here around avoiding orchestration
2: yeah so the essence is uh again like thinking about what's uh Uh, permanent when what's uh, very likely to change, right? So uh, orchestration involves uh, workflows, right? Mm -hmm. And workflows are fragile and change often, right? So uh, Mm -hmm. today I may think that like I want to deduct the reward points before payment. Tomorrow I may decide I want to do it in the reverse order, right? So if Mm -hmm. the platform implements these workflows on on behalf of the product, And every time product wants to do it differently, you may end up having to change the platform. So it goes again like nothing is new on the surface of the sun. And I'm very happy to borrow things as long as I give credit. So this is definitely inspired by Unix principle, right? Mm-hmm. The create create the uh, simple utilities and let the customer orchestrate them. In the case mm-hmm. of Unix through pipes, right? So let your platform be a collection of primitives, primitive mm. not in anything dumb, but mm-hmm. in the sense mm-hmm. of reusable like Lego bricks, but let them then assemble the workflow based on this primitive. Do not hard code any workflows in your platform itself. Okay. Um, I think that will uh, help with you not having to make changes because the workflows do change quite a lot and uh, they, they surprise us all the time.
0: Yeah. And I, and I see how this traces directly back to the change frequency because even in the example I described, I think you could make an argument that um, having a sort of abstraction over top of multiple equivalent service providers isn't necessarily orchestration because it's not going to be changing frequently if there's sort of a, a common set of uh, consumer inputs for for payments. But the full workflow of taking a shopping cart process and f- going through fulfillment. That's an, that's an orchestration that obviously can.
2: Yeah. Change. Shopping cart is a great example, right? So you can make a lot of exam uh, assumptions on what the workflow of checking out a product is, but mm. then every, uh, retailer may actually want to <laughs> do something different or inject something in that. Yeah. So it's very, uh, unthankful job to try to design this workflow, just make calling each step of the workflow very easy. And honestly, designing the workflow itself is easy enough that their product people can handle it. You don't need to do it.
1: Yeah, I think I was thinking along a similar lines as to what you were just mentioning there. What you One of the things that really leaps out at me is going back to your total cost. Um, the cost of implementing a workflow is one thing, The cost of changing it is another because of what you had said before about breaking changes and having to retest a lot of things and so on and so forth. So what, what you're trying to do, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, is you're trying to remind people to reduce the cost. If you, if you don't orchestrate uh, everybody else's platforms, that's a cost reduction, right? If you, if you don't, uh, uh, if, if you keep the, the elements primitive, uh, that's a cost reduction because you're you're reducing the coordination, right? Is that, is that kind of a way to think about it?
2: That's exactly what it is. Like you may save them a day of coding today, right? Because today yeah. you know what their workflow is and that's great. Mm-hmm. But a year from now, it may cost them two months when they need to change something. And now you have a static workflow that uh, a lot of people depend on and you cannot change it for just one con- consumer.
1: Yeah. Okay, so that leads to the third principle, which I think we've already talked about. Uh, these are actually making more sense now that you know that that I hear you and Matt talking about it. So the third principle that is platforms may never implement consumer specific logic, and I think that's I think you've talked about that already that that's one of the, the the total cost problems, right is you keep coming up with this extra feature for Mike or this extra feature for Matt's team, and pretty soon you've got this gnarly beast but so I'm gonna jump ahead then. Is there a way to kind of, you know, I'm going to say sort of set aside like, you know, this is the generic behavior. If you want something special, give us a configuration or do something that that sort of like lowers the cost of something that's a little bit more, I don't know if you'd say niche or consumer specific. Am I headed in the wrong direction? What do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, one thing to remember, it's a great question. Um, You don't have to create a single platform. You can have multiple platforms, Mm. right? (laughs) So if you want to address the uh, problem of the um, consumer-specific logic, you can create another platform that does that, but don't put it in your payments platform. Don't put it in your core banking. Don't put it in your rewards platform, right? So have an identity. Um, Consumer-specific logic is all about user experience, it's not really the functionality, underlying functionality. Mm-hmm. So, uh-huh. uh, why are you including it? And uh, yeah, I have another example from S3. The way I'm talking S3 up, like somebody should give me a free S3 access for life or something, <laughs> <That's> right? <true. laughs> I, don't, I don't think they will, but I think I'm working up That'd to it. That'd be nice it would be nice um, they can give us 3 uh, I, i'm I'm all about sharing like uh, I'll share with mike <laughs> okay. all of us and Matt. Exactly. yeah all of us yeah. but yeah uh, the example uh, is um, so if you think about s3 versus like dropbox or google drive like mm-hmm. all of them are uh, successful in their own right but nobody uses google drive or dropbox for like machine learning models or creating data lakes Right? Mm-hmm. Because it yeah. assumes certain user interface, center, mm-hmm. c- c- certain consumer specific logic, even though the underlying technology may have a lot, like they probably have mm-hmm. all of the capabilities that S3 has, right? Mm-hmm. But that's the thing, right? S3 kept it very minimal, and S3 kept it uh, uh, without assuming how it's going to be used. And that's what it allowed to have way bigger scalability than something that was more specific, like Google Drive yeah. or Dropbox. Yeah.
0: I get it. Yeah, it was it was born unbundled. It was born thing, unbundled. Another another term. <laughs> right. You like? <laughs> there's another one. <laughs> yep. Okay. Now, so this the, I mean, great article, great presentation. We will include the link so everyone can see or or read it. Um, but I just you know before we before we close, I, I there's a couple other areas I want to talk to you about. There's a whole quote unquote platform engineering movement. Going on right now, I think um, you can see as these hype cycles go. Right, you can see the stage that platform engineering is at. When you see a lot of, at least I see them, a lot of paid ads for startups that are apparently platform engineering companies with memes and such. But um, you know, you're it's it is notable now, especially after this discussion, that you, a, a guy who once had API prominently in the title, you have platform prominently in your title now, right? I think platform engineering, for the most part, has been aligned with the whole DevOps, cloud native community, and and probably comes with a number of assumptions. What's your take on on the platform engineering movement? I mean, I'm just interested to see, like, is it is there merit there? Is there is the is it the, the focus on the right things?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. So um, I think that the way most um, people use platform engineering is is not it's not the same platform we've talked uh, here about and you mentioned it's more related to DevOps and cloud engineering um, but um, I think that platform engineering has to do with the fact that um, we're really accelerating in life like everything, like there's increasing expectation, everything to be faster, more, right? And, uh, that means that when you build products in 2023, 2024, uh, the demands on the responsiveness and, uh, uh scalability of the solutions is much higher than anything mm-hmm. we were building in 1995, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you need a lot of people who are experts in SRE and are building things, um, Uh, to a higher degree of quality than, let's say, an average software engineer that is more skilled in designing APIs would have. Mm -hmm. Now, what the future of that is, is is hard to tell because uh, clearly cloud providers are uh, deploying more and more managed services, right? Mm -hmm. So if, uh, let's say, managed Kubernetes in the cloud is so easy to use that I never have to, think about what goes behind making it so reliable and so fast, then do I need to have a member of my team be a Kubernetes expert, right? Mm -hmm. I think today a lot of uh, organizations are finding the answer to that question to be yes. Like You still need to have Mm -hmm. your own expertise, but in the future, that may change. I think this leads to uh, something else I wanted to mention that um, Like these days, you cannot talk about anything without bringing up AI and generative Mm -hmm. AI, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So part of the reason that I'm uh, passionate about um, platforms is um, I, as everybody else, uh, see that uh, AI, and specifically generative AI, can have a huge impact on the way we program, right? Mm -hmm. And the last 15, 20 years has been all about A bunch of people publish APIs, and a bunch of other people can write code that can consume and combine those APIs. Mm -hmm. So that second category, I think in the next three, four, five years, is going to completely transform, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, generative AI models at this point are already very, very good at writing code if they know that space. Right? Mm. So you could argue that you could feed them a lot of API documentation for existing APIs. And they should be very good at me telling them, hey, can you give me the weather for tomorrow and combine it with like uh, tomorrow's uh, rate for US dollars and then figure something out. (laughs) And then it writes all the code that calls that API and then another API and that's what you need, right? And today you may still want to take take a look at that code because of the hallucination, right? <laughs> but yeah. tomorrow maybe you don't need to do it as much, right? But um, so everybody knows this, but what we need to start realizing that changes the nature of how we interact with the APIs. Like, mm-hmm. I may not care about how beautiful the design of the API is because the whole idea of the API needs to be beautifully designed and it better be rest and not soap, only mattered because me as a human had to easily understand how to interact with that API. But if that job is delegated to an AI and all I do is give it prompts, then does it really matter how well-designed that API is as long as it gets mm-hmm. the job done because machines don't really care about the beauty of the design of things, do they?
0: Wow. Not well, Not that I know of. I, sorry, I, yep. I was just going to... I'm biting my tongue here, Mike. I'm, I'll let you go in a second, but I just wanted to point out I've I've actually seen evidence of generative AI models becoming less precise with their code based oh, yes. on the fact that they're optimizing for... Generation and not precision, but I, th- I feel like we've we've just teed up a, an episode, a, another episode for you to come back and join us, at Yeah, I'll I, hand I, it over I, to yeah.
1: Mike. I think that is I, I just. I just wanted to follow up on the on the thing that Arakly just mentioned about like things change. I, I was introduced to the to a new uh, way to pronounce API, and that is application prompting. Interface, and it is I think what you were just referring to, Irakli, in the sense that because I'm just learning about this, in the sense that what's going to happen is computers are not going to translate. You know, we're going to talk to computers. Computers are not going to translate that into C or C sharp or Java. They're just going to talk to other computers. So as we learn to program these generative AI tools with prompts, forget everything I told you, now let's start. The context is this document. What I really need is somebody to go find me this blue shirt and this size at a good price and that can be shipped tomorrow. That computer can go and just have the same conversations, the same prompting conversations with other computers. So yeah, I don't think we're going to be writing quality JSON or quality XML or html or you know form controls or anything the way we think of them uh but that's again i think matt is correct and i think we're we're looking at a whole nother episode of this yeah i
2: think it's hard like everything is moving so fast like it's uh such an unthankful job to predict anything but um, for as long as we do it uh it's hard to tell what's going to happen but if i had to guess i would guess it exactly the way you said i think before gen ai starts writing quality c++ code for linux kernel way before that we will start using it to uh, orchestrate apis and be able to talk to those apis and consume apis because that's kind of boring for us and instead we'll be we will be giving it prompts to explain what we want and then it can go and read all this documentation and um Uh, write all the code and as far as what matt said uh, again like we're in the early days so i think the quality will improve Mm -hmm. but i firmly believe that like some of the hallucination and some of the ai makes things up it happens when it doesn't have enough data right so i I view ai currently like a toddler it has a problem admitting that it doesn't know anything (laughs) and uh, when it doesn't know something it tries to make up by like imagining things. but what I have also noticed, especially like working with like bigger brains, uh, paid services, <laughs> uh, is that um, when it knows things, right like when it has enough data, it actually is very good, right? So if we create the conditions when it does not have to make things up, I think its outcomes are much higher quality.
0: And, and I and you're probably right and, and I can be proven wrong. I guess I'm just still, I'm still burned by being the guy who, when the internet came out, thought that this is great because the whole world will have access to the truth. And in fact, there's a lot more mistruth. Than, no, there's a lot more disinformation Ouch. than there's
2: information. Ouch. Anyway, and the anyways. internet said, "Can you please define truth?" Yeah.
0: yeah. So, so let's say quality data, more quality right. data it has, there I think, is you, the but go, anyway, this is great. Um, and and maybe you know, maybe just to tie a bow on the whole thing that when you're describing there, maybe that the AI use cases are more going to be the things outside the platform and the precision and care of the, and the human intervention will still mostly be inside the platforms that we build that are the foundational building blocks for all these things. So awesome. Well, Rockley, a huge thanks for joining us. It's been our pleasure as always.
2: Pleasure has all been all mine. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot, guys.
1: Great stuff as usual. I learn every time.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Irakli. Thank you to all the listeners out there. Hope you've learned as much as we have, and we look forward to bringing you the next API experience. Bye for now.